We're going to be in John chapter 4. So take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 4. Basically, the whole chapter is the canvas for what I want to share with you this morning. But that's an awful lot to read. And I am tempted. But we're especially looking at verse 4 to 42. So let's, uh, let's begin at verse 4 of chapter 4. And he, that is Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. By the way, if you have three children's alphabet blocks and you put A at the bottom and B on top of A and C on top of B, you would have a rough kind of a cubistic <laughs> uh, view of Palestine. And Judea was A, Samaria was B, and Galilee was C. And Jesus was moving from Judea, block A, to block C. And he went through Samaria. The Jews didn't generally go through Samaria except on the occasion of festivals because it w would make the journey a journey of three days instead of several more. So Jesus makes his way through Samaria and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be noontime, since the day begins at sunrise, and six hours from sunrise would roughly be noontime, the middle of the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samarians. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus is weary and thirsty. I've been to Israel. It's hot there. And when you're journeying over a long stretch, there, there's no water. There are no water fountains. There are no mini-marts along the way to stop and get something refreshing. And so Jesus goes to the well, but he has nothing with which to draw water. Reminds me, when I was a young man, uh, back in 1972, we backpacked uh, the Grand Canyon, the Bass Trail, which is a primitive trail. Uh, there is no water but the Colorado River. You take eyedroppers because if you happen to come across a little puddle, uh, you can then suck that water out of that puddle and store that to hydrate you until you get to the Colorado, should you run out of water or get lost or not be able to get there because there are many miles. Twelve miles was the shortest route we could find between the trailhead and the Colorado River. Then you treat that water, which is rather greenish. And uh, we were there. It was a five-day cycle. And when we came out, uh, well, we had to catch a Jeep since we hitchhiked to the Grand Canyon. So when we got to the trailhead, we were still 20 miles from civilization, and we were now out of water. So we laid down. Tom meditated because he was into transcendental meditation. I had just become a Christian, so I prayed. And we rested, and we waited. I don't remember how much time elapsed, any amount of time seemed too long when you're thirsty, but eventually an old VW bus came bouncing down the road filled with five college girls. Talk about answered prayer. <laughs> I'm telling you. And they gave us a ride back, gave us a place to stay, place to shower, 
fixed us a big spaghetti dinner, got us onto the road, and we hitchhiked home. But the point is, is that he got to the well, but he had no means to get any water. Wasn't it a wonderful VW mini bug that she showed up? And she had the means to get the water. And because Jesus was so thirsty, it didn't matter that she was a Samaritan. It didn't matter that she was a woman and he was a rabbi. It didn't matter that he was going to break taboos because he was thirsty. So he asked her for a drink of water. And she herself was shocked. But the interesting thing about this story, something that you can miss, is Jesus never got a drink of water. It's never mentioned. And that's because there's something more important to Jesus than water. The woman. Her need, not his need, is what matters. And you know, the really interesting thing as you listen to this story, as I read and pondered this story, to me the really profound thing is that doesn't surprise us at all. You just think about that. He put her needs ahead of his needs. His needs just disappeared, got lost in the more important things, the things that really mattered. And that doesn't surprise us. It doesn't shock us one bit. We immediately think that is just totally Jesus. That's why he's my hero. That's why he inspires me. That's why he's my savior. He put me ahead of himself. He put us all ahead of himself. It doesn't surprise us one bit. And that's at the heart of what I want you to appreciate this morning. Because here in this story, the woman sees just a stranger. She sees just a man, a Jewish man, an antagonist, an opponent. She sees a stranger asking her for water, nothing more. And we see so much more. And that is the chasm, the vast, uncrossable almost, it seems, chasm between knowing Jesus and not knowing Jesus, knowing who he is and not knowing who he is. And because we know who he is, it changes the way we see everything. We don't see him just as a man, a stranger, we see him as Savior. We see him as God become man, divest himself of his royalty, set aside his desires, interests, and put you and me first. That's a huge difference in the way we operate and see the world 
Once we have been touched and changed by Christ. Notice the conversation in verses 10 through 15. It begins with Jesus asking for a drink of water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she comes back, living water, she doesn't actually say those words, but she is surprised because living water is running water. It's moving water. It's not water standing still as well water is. So even though she doesn't even say it, listen to what follows as if she did say, living water, you don't even have a way to draw water. I mean, this is preposterous, you see. You're talking about living water and you don't even have a way to get well water. The only water here, she says, is a well, and it's really deep. And on top of that, you don't have any way to get it. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see this interesting contrast between what Jesus has said and what she goes on to say. Because Jesus had just told her, if you, know who, if you knew who was asking you, give me a drink of water, you would have asked him and he would have given you the gift of God. But she comes back to Jesus and she says, this well is the well that our father Jacob found. This is Jacob's well. You're not greater than Jacob. And he drank of this well. This is a good well. It didn't just serve him. It served his sons and even his cattle. This is a bona fide good source of water. And you're talking about something that isn't even around. A guy who doesn't even have a ladle to get to the water that's right here in front of him. But the contrast is powerful. She is so earthly minded. She is so dialed in to what is visible and tangible. The material world, this utterly earthly existence. He talks about the gift of God. Living water. He'll go on to talk about his father, but she can only talk about our father. And she says, you're not greater than him, are you? Expecting a negative answer. Expecting him to realize you're overweening. You're reaching way beyond yourself, sir. Come down to earth is what she's saying. Get real. Live in the real world. Do you see the contrast between Jesus and the way we are often inclined to operate ourselves? 
And then in verse 15, she says, after he says, look, this living water is a water which in you will spring. And now he starts talking about living water, moving water, gushing water. This is, this is like a dry land, and all of a sudden there's gurgling up in the midst of this dry place, this, this source of water bubbling, gushing forth, and never stopping. It's, it's life without end. And so she says in verse 15, Sir, I want this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. Even then, she's thinking, okay, this would be cool. I don't have to make this trip. I don't have to drop my, my bucket, as it were, into the well and haul and tote every day. Be thankful for tap water. You see, the significance of this mis misunderstanding is, is not that she doesn't understand words. It's that she is earthly-minded. By the way, in the Gospel of John, there's a constant contrast between what's from above and what's below. What's fleshly and what's spiritual. And in our world, increasingly, people are material in their perspective and in their thinking. And it doesn't mean that we can't navigate there. We have to navigate there. But if that's the only way in which we navigate, the only way in which we think, if that's the first thing that comes to mind, we're going to miss out on the reality of what Jesus Christ has brought and makes present and real in our lives. If I go to a social gathering and I'm among people I've never met and I listen to the conversation and I enter into it and we're just discussing, you know, sports, news, but people will begin to express their opinions, what they think is important, what they like and don't like, what they assume is fearful, I see it differently. You know what I'm talking about? You should. You see it differently. You hear it differently. You don't fear the same things. You don't like the same things. You don't think the same things are so important. Because Jesus, you have been changed. You are in the process of being transformed in your heart, in your values, in your thinking. What you treasure and what the world treasures, what you value and the world values, what they live for, what motivates them, incentivizes them does not motivate us and incentivize us the same way. Why? Be 
because our hearts have been invaded by a higher reality, a greater truth, an entirely different worldview, one that is not devoid of the supernatural and the spiritual, but is swallowed up, and the whole of reality includes this natural world, but is bigger than it. I read a blog by a Christian blogger. He wrote about his kindergarten-aged daughter who came home with a little homework assignment. It said, help your child identify as many logos as possible without hesitating. His daughter identified Pizza Hut, Target, and Lego. Five years old. At first, that kind of surprised me. But then I thought of my five-year-old granddaughter who could probably outdo his daughter. And without hesitating, uh, she could say this because she collected the logos of, of uh, the Legos of Disney and then she was familiar with Jell-O and goldfish crackers and later while drinking a glass of water, she proudly shouted, that says Ikea. She spotted the tiny logo imprinted on the bottom of the glass. And he was jolted by this. It caused him to realize how his little five-year-old daughter had internalized these logos simply by living for five years in a brand-saturated culture. He said, our kids know more corporate brands than Bible verses. Now, this is not to arouse you to begin to legislate how we should do away with brands or move to the mountains and start a commune in which kids are not exposed to Legos and Disneyland. This is more about realizing there's deep truth that they're missing. Where are they going to get it? Because it's not just memorizing Bible verses. The Pharisees knew more Bible than you and I will ever know. The Bible is a window on the truth that Jesus Christ came to bring. It changes the way we see the Old Testament and even read the New. It helps us to see what God has done in Jesus Christ that has not in any way been paralleled or equaled. It is world-changing, life-changing. It changes the way we see the past and the future. It changes the way we see the present. This passage is a battle of brands. Brand earth, if you will, and brand Jesus. Jesus reaches out in this passage. She reaches out to the Samaritan woman. She's more in, interested in, his, in her spiritual condition than his physical condition. In this passage, we see the disciples, and I hope you'll read on and reread this chapter 4. He's discipling 12 men. He's living out this 
new existence in their presence, constantly in a battle of brands, the brands that they have grown up with and the brand that he represents. Even though they call themselves disciples, he still has so much for them to learn. So much. It's not a one and out. And here in this passage, we not only see that he is reaching out and raising up, but he is reverencing. He's talking about the most important thing, which is true worship. Because that really is the very objective and goal of his coming. So I want us to follow Christ. It's, uh, we've heard that before. But it's a, it's a day to just reflect on something so fundamental, to follow Christ. And I've already shared some really valid reasons why we ought to, because we've already been changed. We already see the world differently. But sometimes we become kind of accustomed to that. And I want us to realize how very radical are the truths that we take for granted, the eyes that Christ has given us through which we view the world, the ears that he has given us through which we hear the world, the hands with which he has equipped us by which we handle and deal with the world. We are to follow him and let him continue as disciples. Let him show us the way of the Christ. God's goal is not our happiness. It is Christ-likeness. And in the battle of the brands, his brand must trump all other brands. Three things that I think he teaches us. He teaches us to see the greater need because he sees the greater need. He teaches us to see the greater way because he sees the greater way. In fact, he is the greater way. And to seek the greatest good because he seeks the greatest good. And the greatest good is that we should be worshipers in spirit and truth of God our Father. So let me briefly try to summarize this. It's a joke to me the way I work out all everything I want to say and then I don't have time to say it. But I'm going to basically say everything that I was going to say, but I just don't know why I wrestle so much with specific words when I never get to use them. But we have to see more than material needs if we're going to see the needs of others. It's not her material need that Jesus was addressing. That doesn't mean that we exclude them. But we are motivated to meet material needs because we do see the deeper need. And in the same way, we are motivated not by material things, but by spiritual needs and spiritual realities to look past all the things that get in the way. 
You see, it's so profound here that when Jesus is with this woman, I mean, it's, it's not only in the way she brings it up, but even his own disciples. Back in verse 27, the disciples come back, and now the woman is there, and Jesus is talking to the woman. They don't say anything, but John tells us about their prejudices. Their prejudices would have prevented them from doing what Jesus was doing, and yet they are his disciples. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They worship on this mountain, we worship on that mountain. Jesus is breaking down all those barriers. There's a greater need. See, when we're materialistic, when it's all about the material things, and not just the things, but when we just see and think materially, we get geared to likes and dislikes, how the system works, how you get ahead, what's success, pragmatics, and it divides us. It divides us. It divides people over appearance, wealth, education, religious affiliation. Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans because they had inferior religious beliefs, partial misguided, incomplete. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. He could have just been content. <laughs> I got it. You don't. See you later. But he knew that her need was going to be met in him. And his disciples need to know that too. And it's that which causes us to look past material things. And that's a process. That is a cathartic, lifelong process. And you will never realize the truth of what Jesus is teaching us and showing us and modeling for us if we are not thinking like he thinks, seeing the world as he sees it, if we're not fostering our spiritual lives, how much of your day do you give to thinking about Jesus or thinking about the truths that Jesus made real. I'm not saying that you have to spend X number of minutes in your Bible and on your knees in prayer. If you're not doing any of that, then you should find some place for that. But I'm talking about reflecting, thinking, thinking his thoughts, seeing things his way, in the middle of all this material kind of life that is constantly 
grabbing at us. You see, we'll never be able to reach out to others. What would motivate us to reach out to others as Jesus reached out to others if we have really nothing that energizes and excites us to offer? If there's nothing going on inside of us throughout the day, like that well springing up to life within us, Naturally, we're thinking material things and we're just, we're roaming with the herd. He sees the greater way, the third way. For example, we've already talked about the woman. Even after she asks for the living water, she goes, you know, that would be such a great, great help to me because I could use, you know, I can't afford a housekeeper, and uh, cutting out all these trips to the well would just be fantastic. Still thinking in such an earthly way, but when Jesus uh, uh, and the woman are interrupted by the return of the disciples, they say, uh, Jesus, you really ought to eat something, which was probably a way of trying to nudge in between Jesus and the woman. You really ought to eat something. And Jesus says, this is in verses 31 through 34, I have food to eat that you, do not, you don't know anything about. And so what do the disciples think? They think, somebody gave him something to eat. You see the difference? I like food. And Shelley knows how to manage me when I'm hungry. But you know, I have grown. And we can get to that place where we find our sustenance, our energy, our life, not in food or in the things that are going to fill us with contentment or happiness or whatever. But we're so plugged into the Lord that we really can in a heartfelt way. Maybe not in Jesus' very words, but we can say, you know what? My sustenance, my food is to do the will of my Father. That is a way that is foreign, foreign, foreign to the world. And that is a way that Jesus is modeling to his disciples. We need to see the greater way and seek the greatest good. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, she says, and this is the controversy over places of worship. And Jesus says, in effect, the greatest good is not there and it's not over here. The greatest good is not about where, but whom. Now, I, I want to share something with you which um, is not common. And that is, is that the Father, in verse 23, we're told, is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Not in spirit and in truth. In spirit and truth. And a lot of People take this as 
the means of worship in the, in, in the sense of our attitude or our inner feeling. This isn't our inner spirit that's being talked about. And I, I wish I had time to make my case for this, but if you are really familiar with the Gospel of John, you will know that spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing you need to know. And the Holy Spirit becomes our gift, our possession, our identification, our status marker in Christ. That only happens upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. Are you following me? Because Jesus says, that time is come and is now here. And he is alluding to what he is going to bring about. Who he is is at the heart of everything he's talking about. And so when he says in spirit and truth, he's really talking about the status of people in Christ. Because in Christ, you are in truth. You are in Jesus. He is the truth. As I've tried to say, Jesus changes the way we see everything, understand everything, expect everything. Jesus changes the covenant that God has with the world. This is no add-on. This is the heart of what God is doing. Jesus Christ is not some and, also, or extra to what God is doing. And this is borne out throughout the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, here he is saying, she says, look, when, when the Messiah comes, we're even expecting the Messiah. When he gets here, he'll straighten all this out. And Jesus says, <clears throat> yeah. It's not with spirit and truth. It's in spirit and truth. So, in one sense, we worship daily because of who we are. God desires your worship because of who you are in Christ. With the gift from above dwelling in your life. But there's another sense, and the greatest sense in which we worship together, because the kingdom of self is a small kingdom. And this is the highest good. Worship, being a people of worship, that takes place together. When in spirit and truth, we together acknowledge him and extol him and elevate him in our hearts to his rightful place. And we, now to get this, we corporately together here take our rightful place at his feet. That is something that does not happen unless we're together. What I'm saying is there's something powerful about all of these people gathering together who are in spirit and truth because we are in Christ invested with the Holy Spirit. Yes, we worship because of the orientation of our lives, the, the head and hearts of our lives. But when we come together, we corporately, we, we humble ourselves at his feet. 
that is something that is important for us to see in a world that does not humble itself. In a world that is all about exalting the individual. You need to see other people humble themselves in worship to the Heavenly Father. To do obeisance to him who won this great right, privilege, and identity as his child. And that's why we need to be together and we need to make this a priority in our lives because you're not getting this message anywhere else. Church should not be a second thought. Worship should not be an afterthought. You're aware of the polls where people probably reared in church Go to church once a month, twice a month. And yet we have this idea that they're Christians because they say they are. And that shows you how powerful this issue of following Jesus is. We don't just bear his name, we bear his reputation. But more than that, as we saw last week, we are the very staging ground of what Jesus has done for us. And that is the greatest motivation of all, to learn the ways of Christ, to see the greater need, to see the greater way and to seek the highest good. Can you stand with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, above all, for your Son and your Spirit. And we pray that you would uh, just... We're so grateful that you meet our needs. And out of that, may we bubble forth with the truths and realities of your presence in our lives that we might see the needs of others, the greater way and the highest good that you have made real to us in our lives. We pray this with thanksgiving and joy in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, I'm going to be up here if you'd like to pray with me or any of our elders, pastoral staff, and their spouses.